Hey, y'all. Yes, you listening. Come and chill and hang out with Mikkel and Candice and all the beautiful people just like you on the front porch where we have intimate intergenerational conversations. So sit back, relax, grab a cool drink, and we'll see you on the front porch. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Front Porch Podcast, where we have intimate intergenerational conversations to connect, build, and learn from each other. I am Candice, representing Generation X, and my lovely co-host is Mikhail, who is representing the Millennials. Now, on this episode of the Front Porch, we are headed out to the stoop to talk about social justice. Mikhail, who's joining us today, on the front porch. Candace, on the front porch today is Kenya, Dr. Christy, Dr. Denise, and Tamia. Hello, ladies. Thank you for being on the porch with us. We'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and what generation you're a part of. Let's start with Kenya. Good evening, everybody. I am glad to be on the front porch sitting on the stoop with everyone this evening. My name is Kenya Eddings and I am a public health professional and I am proudly representing Generation X. Okay, Generation X. (laughs) Dr. Denise. Hello, hello, hello. It is great to be on the porch. I just feel myself in my rocking chair, just going back and forth, watching the cars go by, talking about the people across the street, why they so loud out there. Just having a great time with you all. Thank you so much for this opportunity to have this conversation intergenerationally about a social justice. I am the owner, founder, creator of Just Talk Consulting, where we really do believe that we can affect change by just talking, but it's got to be a just talk. So it's talking about justice and how we can learn to live and love differently to create a more just and peaceful and equitable and inclusive world. And I am so grateful for this opportunity to join you all in this conversation. Thank you so much. Awesome. And Dr. Denise, what generation are you a part of? Generation X. Another Xer. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Christie. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for having me. I'm Dr. Christy Carter, founder and principal consultant for Christy Carter Consults right here in the South. I am a social, we have a social impact firm and we focus primarily on inclusive ecosystem building in the South. And I've done a lot of work in the Delta and happy to be on this call with my friends. Awesome. And I am Gen X all the way, so I am I'm among friends. Y'all are deep. Gen X is deep. Rolling on the porch. Rolling Rolling deep. Deep on the porch. <laughs> and rounding out the front porch to Mia. Oh, is Tamia frozen? I think Tamia might be frozen. She might oh. be frozen. Oh. Hopefully Tamia will get back. But Tamia was on the first episode of the front front porch talking about generation who she is 14 she's a freshman and she is representing generation z so welcome everyone so before we jump into our discussion on social justice we're going to have like a kind of a warm-up little appetizer some snacks on the front porch and we call this rapid fire so i'm going to say a word or a phrase 
and you all will say the first thing that comes to mind, no explanation, no changing it, just the first thing that comes to mind. It will go in this order, Kenya, then Dr. Denise, and then Dr. Christie. All right, ready? Ready. Advocacy. Justice, education. Speaking mm. up. Mm. What I do all day. Mm. Reparations. I would say uh, reimbursement, uh, giving back, paying in full. Mm. Will not be denied forever. Mm. Take them when you can. You might have to get reparations on your own. Mm. I thought somebody was going to say, run me my coin right now. <laughs> we coming for them now. Right. We coming for them now. Right. All right. Next one. We'll, we'll switch the order now. We'll start with Dr. Christie, then Dr. Denise, and then Kenya. What comes to mind when you hear no justice, no peace? Movement. Protests. Mm. Action. Mm. And finally, liberation. We want it. We need it. Mm -hmm. Full body autonomy. Mm. Liberation is the, I think, um, being able to exhale, finally. Mm. 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 Love this. This is wonderful. Yeah. This is oh. some good rapid fire. This really gets us into the to the meat of what we're going to talk about today um, around social justice and even your responses to those rapid fire questions or the rapid rapid fire, um, the words and the phrases during our rapid fire segment really leads us into the question of how do each of you define social justice? that might be the same or different than other generations. Um, we'll start with, we'll start with Dr. Denise. How do you define social justice? Same or different from other generations? I, th I think that Generation X defines social justice in the same way as our, as the previous generation, I think what, in, in terms of social justice being the need for us to move collectively as one body, like it's moves to get what is, to take what's ours, right? To demand it, not to ask for it, beg for it, plead for it, but to let everybody know that this is my rights and my rights are being violated. And that is something that I cannot and will not stand by and allow to happen. I think that we both generations understand it in that way. I think that generation X on some level, because we have experienced more because um, we have reaped the benefits of the gains from the previous generation. We've lost sight of that goal because we no longer move as that collective body. Yeah, we know Black people need to come up, but some of us are like, but those Black people, because see, I already got mad. And so that's where the divide become, comes into our generations. And then when I look forward to um, generation is Z, is it Y, generation, the next generation? Millennials. The millennials. millennials. When I think about them, it's like they are so far removed. It's like we don't even know why y'all still fighting. What y'all talking about? Um, and so 
I don't even know if I want to say, yeah, the millennials and those like Tamia's age, like we haven't done an, an effective enough job of telling the story and keeping everything in front of us because we've been hoodwinked into thinking that we've got, um, that we're better off than our ancestors. And so I think that um, the definition is the same. It's just our response to it and our approach to it that I think is vastly different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll just jump in and say that um, I agree with everything Dr. Donnell said, but then I'll also add um, that when I reflect upon what my parents' generation went through as it relates to social justice, I think that they had to um, have a healthy level of um, activism, meaning they, they had to be boots on the ground. They had to be protesting. And it is because of what they did that we are where we are today. I think that along with um, activism, as it relates to social justice, there has to be a healthy level of advocacy. And what I mean by that is that we have to be able to, we have to explain and educate um, folks on what, what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it. Um, and I think that for Generation X, like Dr. Donnell said, um, our parents, they did the groundwork, they laid the foundation for us. And so we have, I think, my generation has um, not necessarily been complacent, but we are—we have gotten to a level where we are comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, but then I think that those who have come after us, the millennials and the Generation Z, the Generation Next, I think that because of the climate they are, that we are in right now, that they are having to revert back to what our parents and grandparents have done with their, their activism, literally getting out there um, in the streets, marching, protesting, boycotting, doing sit-ins, um, because again, the climate dictates that they have to do that. So I think that's the difference, the comparing and the, the contrast. Mm. Mm -hmm. Dr. Christy, what are your thoughts about this question, defining social justice? You're, you're oh. muted, Dr. Christy. Yeah, my dogs just deboed and came in on me unexpectedly with <laughs> this recording. So y'all bear with me. I tell you, the smallest dogs in the world, big dog complex. <laughs> but um, when I think about social justice, I think about um, how again it crosses every generation. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, being a Gen Xer, I am to some degree, looking to the past, right? I'm looking for that that one big voice that moves us all together collectively toward the same type of goal. But now I realize that because of them, we're all empowered as generations. And so every generation brings about their own ideas on how we continue to move through this you know, every evolving phenomenon, which is social justice, right? So, you know, I lean to all of us to some degree to have uh, our experiences, um, the way we move about the world and how we live to bring those different type of um, new lenses to, for which to see social justice. 
Mm-hmm. So again, and and I even come from a, a lens of inclusivity. So I want to know what all generations are thinking and feeling and doing in their own way towards social justice. And I'll be the first one to say, and you know, in 2020 when we were protesting, I was protesting differently. Mm. No than some of my other generations and mm-hmm. I but I applauded the ones who were on the ground but mm-hmm. then again, you step up your advocacy and you use your platforms where you can to create those pockets you know for ch- social justice to kind of evolve and conversations to be had so that's pretty much my view on that it's such it's it's big right it's mm-hmm. it's and it's a lot of work but definitely we need everybody's you know, voices to be heard. Mm-hmm. And can I reflect a little bit about what Dr. Carter just said when of she course. said um, social justice and advocating in different ways? It made me immediately think about um, the boycotts and the sit-ins back in the 50s and 60s and how um, all of the Black celebrities who could not be on the front lines, but they, you know, sent suitcases of cash to help to fund, to feed, uh, to house and to clothe those who are protesting. So Dr. Carter's right that we all have a place and we all just we're, are kind of getting in where we can fit in to make a difference. And I just immediately thought of that when she said that. And so I thought I'd bring that up. Yeah, and I need to bring up something too, because I'm, I'm pushing back on my own statement about uh, some of the younger generation um, not knowing what's like, not knowing what the fight and the struggle is about. I do think a level of that is true, but what I do want to um, also add to it to the conversation is that um, when those when the young folks do realize that it's time to show up, they show up and they show up strong, and they have been um, they've been for me um, an inspiration to to because I grew up. In the and with respectability politics, mm-hmm. I don't see that as at work as much with the younger generation. So when we keep when we think about the mm-hmm. '60s, especially the children, the young folks played a huge role in mm-hmm. that movement that mm-hmm. we don't talk about enough. And so I was li- listening to the conversation. I'm like, shame on you, Denise, for acting like the children don't know. Again, I do think that we do need to educate more. I was thinking more about how we. Um, we don't share the story. So there's so much mm-hmm. that our children don't know because trauma keeps us from selling, telling the story, yeah. uh, all kinds of things. And so that's what I was stuck in. But I'm so glad to sit here and listen and say, wait a minute, we got I got to give props to the young folks because they are not only showing up strong, but as Dr. Carter says, showing us a different way of protesting, mm-hmm. of fighting, of um, being involved in the struggle and uh, embodying the struggle, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I needed to say that. Mm-hmm. Powerful growth moment in action. So speaking of young people, Tamia, how, how do you define social justice and how do you believe your generation defines social justice? Personally, when I hear social justice, I just kind of think of the word recycle because I think or I see the same habits recycled from the 50s and 60s of protesting to now, like the same as marches or nonviolent acts or even some violent acts. I kind of just see it all passing through generations, like Dr. Carter said. So I feel like we add our own twist to it. Like we'll be fighting something different, but 
using the same motivation from our ancestors. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting because there's so many threads that you guys are, are weaving together about how you think about social justice across generations, which is you know part of what we, we want to be able to do on the front porch. And one thing that was really clear, I think, is the idea that I guess it's really more Generation um, Z. And, and I've even seen this in you know some articles and things that I've read, but Generation Z and then those who might be boomers or older Gen Xers, like there are a lot of similarities in how they see social justice, how they uh, participate in movements and protests. And, and, um, and then you have, you know, Generation X and the millennials, and we're kind of like, I thought we made it. I thought y'all pushed us through the door. Like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. We're not as far as we thought we were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're mm-hmm. having to, I think, rethink um, our own ideas about social justice and where and how we should be using our platforms and our positions and our uh, sense of power or how adjacent to power we are. Mm-hmm. But I think that's difficult to do, right? Because my what I feel like I keep running into is the 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 different iterations of the systems at work against us. When we talk about racism. Well, we we were fighting it because it looked one way, or we thought mm-hmm. it looked one way. And so we're ready. We get ourselves together. We get the movement. We strategize. We show up. We do all of this work. And then it seems like by the time we do that work, there is a different iteration. So now it looks a different way. And so I feel like we're always playing um, defense. And and mm-hmm. so I, and because I, we don't know. So I always say it must be, it's a table somewhere. It's people mm-hmm. sitting at this table, <laughs> figuring this stuff out. And we talk about bringing our chair to the table, right? Kick down the right. door, bring your chair to the table. I'm like, I can't find the table. Mm-hmm. I would kick down yeah. the door. I would pull up a chair if I knew where it was. And so I feel like, I feel like I get so tired sometimes because I just feel like I, I can't, I can't see, I can't see what it is that I'm fighting until I'm already caught up in the mix. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was deep, Dr. Donnell. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we mm-hmm. do. We feel it. We run up against the wall and it's like, oh. Right. Yeah. But isn't that how the system is designed, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's designed to, to keep you kind of in the hamster wheel. It's designed to overburden you, overwhelm you. And it can be when you look at it generationally, when you look at the historical signposts, when you can see a headline Mm -hmm. today and say, you can pull that from 1950, you can pull that from 1866, right? So to still see those things being perpetuated on Mm -hmm. a daily basis. But but I try to ground my hope in tapping Mm -hmm. into joy because joy is an act of resistance. I try to ground my hope and like what's within my control even on a local level, right? How can I pour into to young people? To Mia is my goddaughter. Like right here on a local level, and and what those right. seeds can can harvest. One thing I will say about social justice for me, just a learning curve, is that like social justice expands into so many areas, right? Social justice mm-hmm. in terms of education, in terms of economic power, in terms of political power, in terms of food security or insecurity, Kenya, like what you're working on, right? And that social justice isn't just limited to race. For Mm -hmm. for so long, I've been, you know, so focused on Black folks, our folks, Black children. 
forgetting, you know, folks that are hiding in plain sight that may be part of the LGBTQ plus community, that may be immigrants here, that may not speak English, right? And okay. some of that plight too. So, mm -hmm. Well, I think that I'm, I'm a little different from you because yeah. I feel like um, when I see what's happening with the LGBTQ plus movement, mm -hmm. I feel like they are we can see and recognize some measurable gains at recently mm -hmm. and even still now in our present because mm -hmm. they just fortified the same-sex marriage mm -hmm. act along with right. interracial marriage. When I right. think about the Asian people and our, our Asian siblings, mm -hmm. and I think about the anti-hate um, bill that they were able to secure just recently, when I think about immigrants and I think about how, how DACA, um, brown folks won big in the last legislative session right, more so right. than any of the other groups groups that you've named. And so when right. I think about all of these different groups where social justice expands into their midst as well, I right. always feel like, but who's being left behind every time? Mm -hmm. And yet I believe that those gains are made on the backs of Black folks. And when I say mm -hmm. Black, I mean Black in the broadest definition, every member of the African diaspora. And so right. now I am, because I was, again, grew up in respectability politics, right. I've been focused on everybody else without even mm -hmm. understanding in my own blackness, with not hearing the stories, with not without really understanding the struggle. And I have a mama who was in the struggle, but she doesn't talk about it. And right. so now I'm like, what? I'm down for black folks, right? And, and not to the exclusion of other folks. But when you talk That's about cool. being invisible, I'm like, hey, we're mm -hmm. here too. Mm -hmm. We're still right. Here too, right? Right, right, right. Don't forget. Right. That. I just think that's interesting the perspective. Yeah, yeah. No, that's but do you? Go ahead, Kenya. I was just gonna say, um, Dr. Danielle, do you see that um, the gains that the the LGBTQ plus um, the the DACA students, et cetera, do you see that as a negative um, towards the Black community? Because I see it, or or as a positive, because without our sacrifices, you know the gains that they've been able to see today, I don't think would not be able to exist or not be able to occur. So is is that an is it a glass half full or is it a glass half empty in your opinion? Oh well please please don't misunderstand. I, I celebrate those wins. I do, okay. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think that, the, again, those wins would not have been made possible uh, without the sacrifices of Black folks. So I'm not, I don't want to take anything away from them. What I do want to say, though, and, and, I, and you can't, because right. especially when you're talking about LGBTQ folks, when people are mm -hmm. living at the intersection, right, you're mm -hmm. Black and LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. whatever, you can't separate that. So, right. so so yeah, my concern is not about, uh, it's not a zero sum game for me. Just okay. because they got something, it means I can't get anything. That's not what right, I'm saying. Right. What I'm okay. saying is when black folks have been fighting for anti-hate, fighting, um, we were fighting for it in Arkansas just a couple mm -hmm. of sessions ago and we couldn't get it moved. And right. so now we have an anti-hate bill. So it's not that we shouldn't have an anti-hate bill, but where is the anti-black bill? When mm -hmm. we talk about Kanye West or Ye, when we talk about all the statements that he's made that were anti-black, there was not a huge backlash. When he says something about Jewish folks, he's almost yep. lost his entire livelihood. So I'm talking about the insignificance that I feel as a black person when it relates to my issues and how the world responds to them is mm -hmm. as opposed to how the world responds to other other people and their issues. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. And you're mm -hmm. absolutely right. Thanks yep. for the clarification. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So along, along these lines, ladies, would love for you all to share a story of when your eyes were open to injustice directly or indirectly and the impact that it had on you. I'll jump in on that one. You know, when I uh, think about that question, immediately I go to, man, let me re recall the time when I first knew I was Black or that mm -hmm. something about me and my physical appearance kept me from getting something or going somewhere or being excluded in some way. You know, when it becomes, you know, and hey, thinking about all the different phases of injustice that we go through, you know, I'm sure there's a phase where we're completely blind and we don't even know what's happening to us. I promise you, I went through that phase for years because, you know, I came up in with a family that said, we're not focusing on the color of your skin and what that may not be able to, or where that may not be able to take you. We want to focus on excellence and your intelligence. Mm -hmm. And those things. So I wasn't concerned about the color of my skin, right? Necessarily. So at that, there was a moment when I realized, hey, I'm black, and this is happening to me because I am black. Mm -hmm. And this is happening to me because of all of the isms. It's happening mm -hmm. to me because I am thick and juicy. And it's happening mm -hmm. to me because, you know, I am an intellect, you mm -hmm. know. And it's happening to me because I am a woman, right? There are all mm -hmm. those things that make you different that you realize, hey, this is just happening to me because I am different. That was when the light bulb went off. As mm -hmm. when I could not fight, I couldn't fight it. I couldn't win. Mm -hmm. I knew that, man, this is the problem. Mm -hmm. And so when you become aware, it's that level of awareness and consciousness that there mm -hmm. is a problem. And you've experienced that at the individual level that now it really means something to you. So the stuff that people were saying to me, I mean, I think about Dr. Maxwell. Candace and I have been friends for 14 years and she's been talking that this is kind of coming. And I go see <laughs> Reverend <laughs> and I'm just infatuated, you know, like, whoa, what is she saying? Mm -hmm. And then until it happened to me, it didn't, I, I was like, now I see. My mm -hmm. eyes are open. I'm enlightened. So that's my personal story. You know, it's just, it had to happen to me. Mm -hmm. And now I'm able to see social or injustices all around me. Mm -hmm. They're everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's every ism that mm -hmm. you can see under the rainbow and everywhere else. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Child, that could be a title of a book. What did you say? The time I realized the first time I realized I was black. Yeah. That would be a title of a book. Right. <laughs> that, that well, a I'll, collection of stories. Mm -hmm. We probably all have that that moment in time where you're like, oh, oh. Mm -hmm. Reminded or realized. Mm-hmm. And you you were I'll just yeah, I was just gonna say I'll jump in. I have a couple of stories um um of indirect um stories about um injustice. So I work in public health and um, a previous job that I had was um, in the area of wellness. And um, part of that, um, part of those job duties included um, teaching the public and workplaces about breastfeeding laws. 
particularly as they relate to um, Arkansas. There are two laws on the books that protects a woman's right to breastfeed in public and at work. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was called by a woman once who said that she was going to pick up her children from an elementary school and had a baby um, who needed to be nursed. The kids weren't ready to come out yet. So she went inside and she was waiting for the kids and the baby needed to be nursed. The baby was hungry right then and there. And so she commenced the breastfeeding her baby right there in the elementary school and was quickly told by the principal that, no, you can't do that here. You have to go outside or go to the bathroom and, and do that. And mm -hmm. so um, not only is that um, against the law, it is um, a public health injustice. And so um, it's something that we we corrected, of course. But then why why should a woman have to be relegated to the bathroom to feed her baby? You wouldn't want to eat your lunch, dinner or breakfast in the bathroom. So why Absolutely. should a woman have to feed the baby in the bathroom? Mm -hmm. And so just simple things like that. Um, and then I'll, there's another instance where um, where it relates to food insecurity, we were teaching some classes um, at my old job. And um, afterwards, one of the employees came up to me and had this sad look on her face. And we went over into the corner and I said, is everything okay? What's going on? Well, long story short, she was at the point in her life where she either was going to pay the light bill or she was going to go grocery shopping for her kids. Mm. And this was not that long ago. This was probably about three years ago. So um, it, this is happening to people every day. And right. then fin finally, I'll just share, um, we're doing a lot of work in the food desert um, space these days. And I talked with the mayor the other day and she was telling me that um, some of her residents, they don't have a grocery store in their town, no longer have one. So a, a residents have to pay someone $20 for a 15 minute ride to the grocery store just to buy groceries. That's happening today. Mm. Um, and, you know, the food insecurity as it relates to minorities in the state, well, minorities, you know, nationwide is twice that of our white friends. And so this is happening today. Grocery stores are closing every day and access to food is dwindling for families every day. And so those are the types of um, social injustices that, you know, that we face on a daily basis that we try to fight against every day. So mm -hmm. those are just a couple that just quickly came to mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can I jump in? Yes, of course. Of course. Um, I just wanted to start by saying I really love Ms. Car what Ms. Carter, Dr. Carter, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. Dr. Carter shared. And I would like to add on to it a social injustice that I see and experience very often that I think is common but overlooked mm. is the level or the standard and bar for intelligence to be white. Mm. Like, Oh, it's always you talk you talk proper or mm -hmm. you're pretty for a brown girl it's always some sort of comparison that's even like either blunt or just hidden inside of a sentence that 
I feel like I, I got it a lot when I was younger and I I didn't know how to take it. I just took it as a compliment. Like, thank you, but thinking of it now, what do you mean I talk proper for a brown girl? Mm-hmm. You compare me to other brown skinned girls and saying that we talk improper because mm-hmm. we're not white or we can't be doctors because we're not white <laughs> or we can't be lawyers because we're not white. Mm-hmm. So I think that is a very common injustice that a lot mm-hmm. of young black children have to face. Mm. Yep. What um what wisdom or suggestion to Mia would you offer to young people for mitigating microaggressions and not internalizing that comparison themselves and then thinking of themselves as less than because of who they are. I would just say like you're smart, (laughs) period. It's no for a brown girl or for Mm -hmm. a light girl or for a black girl, you're smart and that's all it is to it. Mm -hmm. Your level of intelligence isn't determined by your skin color. Ooh. We're in good hands, y'all. Come on. We're in good hands. That's, you know, as you all were talking about that, I just started to think about the many times and ways in which I've seen people, you know, that I went to high school with or particularly high school who were extremely intelligent. But because mm-hmm. of the surroundings, they had perpetuated that somehow intelligence that they, they didn't want to be equated with being intelligent because of the environment in which they were living. Mm-hmm. You can't be you can't be intelligent and a thug like what you like somehow that just wasn't going to work. You got to choose one. Right. You didn't have right. to choose. Right. I'm thinking mm-hmm. it's crazy. But, you know, I saw that happen so, so, so many times. So the thing that we know about social injustice is that it's pathological, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. again, I think all of you have alluded to some way of, and we're talking about this intergenerationally. So we're, I mean, we had all of our generations represented, you know, how would that golden thread still be the same? Of course, Mm -hmm. because it's pathological and it's rooted in, in our ancestry and our history. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you know, I always think about, you know, people ask very hard questions of me. How, how do you how do you undo this? Or what do you do? You know, um, we have been behind in resources and economic resources for so long. Yeah. Um, and and that's only one problem. Right. Um, and so I just don't know where the answer lies. You know, I really don't know where the where the that answer lies but just to say that the pathology somehow how do we address that even you know on our at the ground level Mm -hmm. i think about but i think that there one of the places that i feel the answer lies is within us i feel like my job my duty my responsibility Um, in order to hold myself accountable to my ancestors, I feel like I have to embody liberation. Like I have to realize that to survive is a a radical act of resistance because of the pathology that you mentioned that is still in play Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I feel like I have to embody resourcefulness. And mm -hmm. so I show up as a resource. I show up with resources. I show up as an intellect and I also disseminate information. Like I show up as all of these uh, weapons against uh, these systems that are at work in all of our lives, in every aspect of our lives. I feel like that's one of the ways I think that we can answer, um, we can respond to the pathology. How did you get there, Dr. Denise? Like, how did you get to that place of confidence in self, belief in self, and anchoring in something greater than yourself to walk in the fullness of who you are, regardless of the circumstance and regardless of, of the audience? For me, my dad, I have two older brothers and um, my dad, this is not the story I wanted to tell, but I just want to answer your question. But so my dad sat us down one time. He sat us down one time and he told us to, we had a table um, that was pushed up against the wall in our kitchen. So there were only three, you only could sit around three sides of it. So that we were all sitting down at around the sides and my daddy was standing there. He said, look around this table. He said, look around this table. And so we looked around the table and he said, you all you got. You are all that you have. And in that moment, he solidified my relationship with my brothers and it mm -hmm. bound us together and said, there is no, I don't care what happens. We will stand together. And we mm -hmm. have been standing together since then. But as my life continued to progress, my brothers started getting married. They started having children. They're moving away. They're having their own homes. They're having their own, um, their own swim pool. They, they got swim pool chat. I love going. <laughs> <laughs> they're living their lives away from me. We're still bound together, but now you are doing your thing over here. And I am um, an independent um, woman who who I really value being single. I value that. Like I'm resistant to this idea of marriage where there's one person. Like I, I'm not saying I'll never get married, but right now I'm like, no, I am fine. I am whole and I am more than enough. And so when I realized that my brothers were doing their own thing, I had to look in the mirror and say, you all you got. Mm. You are all you got. What are you going to do now? Who are you going to be? How are you going to show up? And so I had to realize I'm navigating this world essentially by myself because I don't have partners. I don't have children. I don't have that. And now my dad is no longer with us. And so it's like, you don't have a choice. And then I realized that that's the mantra that they've been teaching me as a black woman for years. Mm -hmm. like, you gotta be, you, you know, your husband, he might not be in the household, but you gotta be no matter what. And so I have just um, had to grab hold to those remembrances of what was already being sold into me. Mm -hmm. And it was, mm -hmm. it's just now blooming and blossoming in a way that I can't, that I'm unapologetic about. Mm. But I wanted to answer the question about you asked what was the question? It was a question about your story. Your story of um, injustice, <laughs> director, indirect. Oh yes. So the same daddy that I'm talking about, who really offered my brother and I this gift in this story, is the same man who was violent towards me in my home. Right? 
Mm. We complicate. We, people are complex. Right? And so because there was violence in my home and my mother, I did not understand this as a child, but my mother was paralyzed to help as a battered woman. Right. So she just did not have the capacity. I saw it as neglect from her on her part. But that's not that's not what it was. And so in order for me to figure out how to live in this house, I needed some help and I needed help that was bigger than I am because I was living in a home where that was our secret. It was our secret that there was violence in our home. So I wasn't telling anybody. So nobody knew. So I need some help from somebody, but I can't tell you what's going on. Well, who can you talk to that nobody knows you're talking to? Jesus. Mm-hmm. I ended up in church because mm-hmm. I'm looking for somebody who's gonna understand what's going on, who's gonna be able to help me. I don't nobody has to know that we're talking, we're building our relationship. And so Jesus literally became, say literally, figuratively became my answer. My when we talk about um a savior, when we talk Ooh. about a rescuer, when we talk about um, the lover of my soul, when we, t- like Jesus was that person for me. And I, I was leaning and depending and clinging to him with every ounce of my being, because I believe that was the only way I was going to survive my home. So fast forward, I get this job where I'm advocating for people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual, agender. I hope I'm getting all the letters in. And let me just add the plus so Mm -hmm. nobody will feel excluded. And I started hearing their stories where because of their sexual orientation, they were being kicked out of the church. And I'm like, you being kicked out of the church? The church, the church is where I run to, right? When I need, like, if I don't have anything else and the church told you that God don't love you, the church told you you're not, I could not believe anybody would lie on my Jesus. Like, I mean, I got upset and I said, oh no, you done found you an ally today because we've been a fight. And so I began to fight in that space and to be an advocate. And to, I'm, one of, I'm an advocate, an activist. I'm going to irritate, interrupt, disrupt. I'm all of that. And then once I got into that space, though, I realized, wait, I'm doing all this to help. But what we, what I'm doing all this to help this community. But what is this community doing to help me as a black person? Right here, mm-hmm. this community. Mm-hmm. I'm showing mm-hmm. up strong. And then when it's time to talk about, we need to go talk about this police brutality then y'all not in the space with me. Mm-hmm. And so again, I'm asking the question, okay, who's going to show up for me? It's got to be me. And so I, I came to this space through the lens of advocacy for the LGBTQ plus community, only to find that I need to also advocate for myself as a Black person. Mm-hmm. Mm. Other, other stories of, of injustices. Or reactions, anyway. Yeah, or reactions, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what's up, uh, Dr. Danelle. I mean, that was just so, that was just so moving. I'm just, I'm at a loss for words. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, well I think, you know, excuse me for interrupting, but going back to um, Mikhail's, you know, question and thought around, like, how did you get here? Like, how did you get there, Dr. Donnell, and she told you is that it was 
you know, very much. And I heard spiritually, right? And I know for me, it definitely was a spiritual movement as well. Because I think when you unearth who you are through understanding what, you know, social injustice or inequities really are, you know that it's spiritual is a deeper level. Mm-hmm. And I heard some things come out of y'all, um, you know, when you spoke that reminded me of my research, you know, clinging on to hope, mm. going to your faith, mm. all of those things that you have to ground yourself in in order to be really who you are every day. You know, and I really, I think about people who are not living in their dying for who they are. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it, it's like you have to, uh, or they're taking their own lives, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you have to go back to that whole, how spiritually grounded are you? You know, because in order to do this work, the work that we do in that and the communities that we advocate for and those mayors in those small rural towns mm-hmm. that are grasping for whatever they can, you know, they're already mm-hmm. in a place of, I mean, disdain is hard. It's like third world countries in some of the places where we live. It shouldn't even be happening. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, it definitely is a spiritual work. And how did you get there? It was hard. I work on it every day. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about who you listening to. Look, I'm running down the road. Can I want to hear Jay Shetty. I might tune in <laughs> on Thursday mornings to Reverend Dr. Denise Donnell and pull, you know, I'm pulling the word. You know, I'm listening to Oprah. <laughs> I'm going where I have to go. You know, we have some very good spiritual teachers um, that are out here for us, but definitely um, fighting and doing what we do. I feel like you have to be spiritually grounded. Mm-hmm. And I want to just say something based on what you said, Dr. Carter. Um, I have um, about suicide. Some people are taking their own lives. And I think that it is a sin and a shame for us to treat people the way that we treat them that would lead to that decision. I absolutely mm-hmm. believe that. So to me, that's where I feel like sin is. I, I don't think if you smoke, that's a sin. I don't think if you drink, that's a, that's not where I feel. I feel like we have societal sin that we don't reckon with. And so mm-hmm. to, to drive a person to a uh, um, to that point, I think is our sin and our shame to carry for sure. And mm-hmm. I want to say that I believe also that suicide is the ultimate act of resistance. I think that a person who says that I that my life, my life is mine to live the way that I deserve to live it. And if I'm unable to do that, then I want to make sure that I am protecting the dignity that I believe that I have. And I hearken back from that with my ancestors through the middle passage and in the Atlantic. Mm. There were some who yeah. said, I will, my, my child is not going. I'm not going. My fa- We will not. We're going to jump right now. And when I think about their body, their bones being buried in the sea, still whispering yeah. to us about, I wonder would I have been that strong? To me, that's that's power, that's strength, that's it. That's I, I just I just wanted to say that because sometimes I feel like when we find out um, the world, when we find out that a person commits suicide, we we shame them, right? We even in their deaths, we shame them. Sometimes people take their lives, and we don't even want the world to know. We lie about it. 
because we've mm-hmm. put so much stigma on um, what we call suicide. And so I just wanted to, I just felt that as you were talking, mm-hmm. again, shame on us for treating a person the way that we treat them that gives mm-hmm. them this suicidal ideation, shame on us. And I feel like I want to celebrate people who say, this is my life and I am going to um, I'm going to make this decision because I believe that it is what is uh, best for me. And I know that's different from people who might be suffering from some kind of illness or something. But I I do just want to say that um, from a from a public health perspective, that um, the ability to at least talk about mental health and social emotional um, wellness has um, really come to the forefront in communities of color since COVID. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've been de- dealing with this for generations. Uh, but if I don't really see the glass is half full, you know, when it comes to COVID, because we've lost so many people, but it has given us the ability to, to kind of rip off that Band-Aid as it relates to mental health and um social emotional wellness. So I, I'm just thankful that we are in a position to at least begin the conversation so that folks can know that they are not the only ones, so that folks can know that they can call for help, so that folks can know that there is help out there for them. Um, black men, I mean, w- the numbers are just unbelievable. Not only black men, but black boys. And mm. so, um, just communities of color, period. Just the fact that we are beginning to have those conversations to move the needle forward is just such a positive. It's such a, it's a blessing, really. Blessing in disguise. So I just wanted to put that out there. And because we're on that that topic, we'll make sure that there is information that we um, we include in, in the notes and in the information on the podcast for those who might be um, dealing with, with some of those issues, because it is something that we do not talk enough about, mm-hmm. have conversations about, even really addressed in some of them, some maybe more positive and productive, effective ways to kind of handle and, and deal with some of those some of those issues. So we'll make sure that we have some information for folks who might who might need it. And I think, though, Kenya, that you're calling us to action. Like when I think about what Dr. Carter said about what is it that we can do, like the answer is hard. And and I was thinking while you were talking that one of the answers, if especially for me, the the call to action, I feel for me uh, that we have to I have to continue to embody being being your people. Right. Because I think some people who are dealing with um, whatever they're dealing with, they don't know that they have people. Right. That's why you end up feeling alone and isolated. That may lead you to make a decision to take your life. And so I've got to make sure that I am reminding folks I'm your people and that we have Mm -hmm. to create spaces for people to share, create spaces for us to challenge the um, teachings of our religion, especially as black folks, where we were taught not to seek help because Jesus is our help. We've got to challenge. We've got to create spaces for those conversations and so thank you for challenging me reminding me like make sure you are always letting people know as much as possible that you are their people they got people um, mm-hmm. i need to know that they're not alone mm-hmm. so you guys have have defined social justice in in some different ways have shared your um stories about justice injustices how that those things have um how those things have actually kind of influenced or impacted your life. And so I'm wondering if there are some other social, maybe some other cultural experiences that have shaped your, your focus and your commitment 
currently? Like what's what's kind of happening in your space in your world now that's like really it is it is absolutely shaping your commitment and your focus on social justice, however you're defining that. Go ahead, Dr. Carter. No, you go. You go. Well, I'll just jump in. Thank you for letting me speak. Um, you know, I I see it coming from everywhere, you know, in terms of what is influencing um, the different approaches that I'm taking to social justice advocacy work, right? Uh, for me, I see it through Black women. Um, my research on Black women entrepreneurship and of the different barriers that, that that black women face in the entrepreneurial ecosystem in the south is pervasive mm-hmm. you know racial bias and discrimination is at the top as to the reasons why they feel like they can't make it mm-hmm. yet you know 100 percent of the women that i researched i mean 108 black women 100 percent of them all were high hope right mm-hmm. So they even had the hope, they possessed the hope and, and the will within to succeed, even when the situation around them seems, you know, bleak, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I look at it through entrepreneurship and health equity, um, where I work with Dr. Kenya Eddings, soon to be Dr. Eddings, mm-hmm. and um, working with it on with the broadband and equity. So, you know, talking about that mayor in small town, wherever Arkansas or in the South and in, in the in rural America, talk about how the pandemic impacted them and pushed them even further to the margins when they have no digital literacy. Mm-hmm. There's no digital mm-hmm. equity. They can't even access what they need to survive. Now, you know, you're looking at having broadband as a quality of life indicator. Now, what? Mm-hmm. You know, and then you have those same mm-hmm. towns that are they're, they're they're like we y'all talking about broadband. We need clean water. Ooh, yes. We need clean water. Mm-hmm. So you have I'm I'm seeing just on the ground through the social work that, the social impact work that I do, the community and economic development work that I do, I see it in all sectors, in education, and again, the health equity, the entrepreneurial um, equity. Um, it's out there, y'all. And and so all of those things and everyone's experiences is what's shape, shaping me and keeping me on this research goal. Because one thing that I find is that we're constantly making assumptions. We're still Mm -hmm. making assumptions and we're allowing people to tell our story. It's not us. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I continue to go um, with the work that I do every day is how can I help tell the stories of those who are are constantly still being pushed to the margins. And I'll just piggyback on Dr. Carter um, with Black women and health equity. So um, I mentioned a little bit earlier about the work in breastfeeding um, that I did at a previous job, but and I still do with my uh, with my new job. Um, breast Black women do not breastfeed at the level that white women do. We know all of the benefits for both the mom and the baby of breastfeeding. Um, besides the fact that it's free. You don't have to go and buy formula 
You don't have to go and, and mix powders and warm up the bottle. You can just breastfeed your baby, period. And so we know that for, for babies who are not breastfed, there are more doctor visits. There's more time off work for mom. And you know, a lot of, um, a lot of low income, low access mothers don't have the opportunity to take time off. And so, you know, we have sick babies and we have um, sick mothers um, because there's a health impact for mom as well. And so in addition to that, trying to educate the community, the black community about the importance of breastfeeding for not only the baby, but for the mom. If, you, if mom is healthy and the baby's healthy, the entire family is healthy. The entire community is healthy. And so taking that message, not only to um, the public, but to churches, faith-based communities, and letting churches know how they can help. Because, you know, most of the congregation is made up of women. And so if you shun a Black woman who has just had a baby from breastfeeding at church, she's going to go home and she's not going to come back. So if we can embrace her, we can educate the, the congregation about the importance of breastfeeding for mom and baby. We can grow congregations because the research is there that we're not going back to church. And COVID has told us, has shown us that we're not going back to church. But faith-based, um, having the church is still the hub of where, where communities of color get information they trust, that they can believe and they can re rely on. So using those um, as, as hubs of information is very important. And then I'll just mention one more thing about um, uh, black maternity, black maternal morbidity, mortality, and depression. Mm. You all, you, I mean, it's not just Serena Williams. It's not just Allison Felix. It's XYZ mom, you know, who's, who's not rich and famous and has access. I have, um, I have a sorority sister who lost a baby a couple of months ago, got to the eighth month and lost her baby and is having some challenges right now. Um, I have a coworker whose cousin just passed away a couple of, couple of weeks ago after having a newborn. Mm -hmm. And so we know, and these are young black women and it is happening and it has been happening. And so if we can shine a light on black women, uplift black women, uplift their health, their mental, their physical, their social, their emotional health. There is a campaign that the CDC created called Hear Her, Hear, the Hear Her campaign. So if check on your, your moms who, who are pregnant, um, check on them emotionally, physically, especially after they have the baby, check on them. Uh, we know that Serena Williams almost lost her life. Judge Glenda Hatchett's daughter-in-law lost her life because she was not listened to. Um, and, and this is even with the medical professionals. We have to train and retrain and we have to scream at the top of our lungs if we need to, to get the help that we need. Uh, we all know that you know with research, gynecological research, that Black women were used in gynecological research to test the pain threshold and that the white scientists thought that, you know, black women had higher pain thresholds. And so that, um, that myth has unfortunately been carried on 
um, generations and generations. And we have to retrain and relearn. And, you know, we have to be the best advocates for ourselves. We individually and we collectively. And so I just wanted to point out those two, um, those two elements for consideration as well. Thank you, Kenya. Thank you so much for saying that. Mm -hmm. and I, you know, I don't want to interject too much. I know everyone else needs time to speak. But I just have to say this, advocating for ourselves. And, you know, again, here we go. Uh, pr producing, it's like a social justice, social justice inequities in these movements are creating another movement, right? So now we're moving toward that self-care you know, and and um, going back to revisit taking care of ourselves. And I think it's important because right now, Black women are under the spotlight and microscope. The light mm -hmm. is shining all on us. Look at this call right now. You know, and I think about it, but we're also human. And I, mm -hmm. and I hate to say, it's like, I say, it's not a bad thing when I say that Black, I believe that Black women are under attack. And I look at it from, um, you know, even from a psychological perspective, right? Mm -hmm. That there, because we are under the spotlight, it's pressure, it's stress. Mm -hmm. It causes those different wears and tears on our bodies. Mm -hmm. So we really aren't performing at our best. Mm -hmm. And if we're not creating an environment where our babies can fully thrive and live good because we're, putting all that on them and mm -hmm. you know it, it's going it's happening to us so taking going back and thinking about exactly what Kenya said caring for and advocating for ourselves first and knowing that we are human mm -hmm. we, we can be superhuman and magical and all that good old stuff but at the when it comes down to it we are human mm -hmm. and we don't have to do everything mm -hmm. the work is out here it's gonna be here it's been here forever mm -hmm. we can go back as far as our mind can remember and this work has been here so yeah we definitely need to take care of ourselves i'm i'm here to try to do better for my own self so mm -hmm. some other other experiences maybe that have shaped your your current commitment to the work that you're you're doing to me the work that you want to do maybe to me the work that you are doing or want to do <laughs> Um, <laughs> sorry, experience, experiences that have shaped kind of how I see myself and how I want to come off to the world and continue to advocate for myself is just how often I see my peers and my friends and just people my age and my color go overlooked by, and what I mean by that is at basketball games, I know some great basketball players, some young male basketball players, and they go overlooked for their talents, and they're still trying hard to get to get into good high schools and get good scholarships. And I know a lot of young females who <laughs> will probably do great in this podcast to share their voices and their opinions. And I think it's just really helped me to understand that I need to use my I need to use my voice as my weapon because it is my strongest weapon and mm -hmm. telling people my experiences and what I've been through and what I hope to achieve in the future. It's, it's just my biggest weapon and the greatest thing I can do. So mm -hmm. continuing to advocate for us, for ourselves, like 
Kenya and Dr. Carter said. Mm-hmm. What do you hope to achieve for your future? Um, um, I don't have a specific field of work that I want to achieve, but as I continue to get older, I just hope to experience more. I hope I hope to use my voice and the outlets and doors that have opened for me in the greatest way possible and to finish high school and go into a great college and graduate and be the first graduate of my family. Mm. So far. Mm -hmm. Reverend, the Reverend Doctor, what do you have to say about this? I didn't know if there was another follow-up. I was waiting, waiting. Um, I think that what is, what's happening around me now um, is I'm doing a lot of reading. I, I'm, a, I'm an avid reader and I'm a bibliophile, I'm all of that. And I get so angry when I read because I'm learning something about me that I did not know. I'm learning something about my history that I did not know. I'm learning something about my ancestors that I did not know. And it makes me mad that we continue to, we are continuing this campaign of, um, of, of not honoring and embracing who black people are to this world and that the world mm -hmm. has come into being because of us as black folks, because of the misuse of our bodies, like Kenya said, gynecologically, medical, I mean, we could just go on and on and on about the misuse of our bodies, even with the institution of slavery. And so when Tamia was talking earlier and she was mentioning the microaggressions that she experiences as a young black woman, then I was also thinking um, that what she was saying about you are holding me up to this standard. I thought about that white game that I've, mm -hmm. I've been living my life. I was taught to live my life through the white gaze and it continues to pervade. And so I'm, I'm, I get so mad because I, I believe that white people really do see us for who they, who we are. They really do see our brilliance. They really do understand our power. They really do recognize our divinity. That's why they fight it so much. And so how come we can't see it? And so I'll get mad because I'm like, I want us to see ourselves for who we really are. I want the veil to come, the, the scales to fall from our eyes. I want the glory to, to shine all around us and we can embrace that and embody that. So my continued learning, learn. I'm going to museums, I'm reading, I'm engaging in conversations, I'm having cocktails and conversations, I'm having dinner and dining, dinner and dialogue, I'm just whatever I can do so that I can channel this anger for people refusing to allow us space to just be because just being is enough for us, right? And it's more than enough for the system. That's why um, they counter us at every turn. And so this just learning more, um, reading more, coming into the knowledge of um, things that have been intentionally hidden from me motivates me to want to um, want to know as much as I can know uh, and to help turn the key for somebody else. Just want somebody. Mm -hmm. Just turn it for want somebody. So I, I would say anger at <laughs> being angry <laughs> is one of the things that motivates me. Yeah, I always think it's it's the, the commitment, you know, to refocus 
um, and maybe even reimagine maybe our focus on our commitment to um, the work that we're trying to do in our respective spaces because it can be overwhelming. It can, it can be taxing. I mean, it's all of those things to the point where, you know, I, I know of a lot of people who are working in the social justice realm or in, D, in, in DEI world, as, as I usually refer to it, who are tired and they've given up and they've said, I don't, I don't, I'm done. Like, I don't want to do it anymore because it's too much. But I think sometimes it's, 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 it is so broad and it is big, but there are some things that maybe we can do that are within our locus of control. And so how do we recommit ourselves to those things, to impacting and influencing people in, in maybe our, our local um, our local surroundings? I, I do think that's that can be a critical and pivotal part of how we actually move the needle. Mm-hmm. Um, I do absolutely agree. I think it is for all that we try to do to tamp down our brilliance, we cannot. We're not necessarily magical. I mean, I, you know, Black Girl Magic, I get it. I understand it. I'm with it. But there is something that's, I think, now that's that's being said about this whole Black Girl Magic, social justice, you're magical. Like, we're just running around spreading pixie dust on people and everybody. Mm-hmm. It out. That is not what it is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do we take back ownership of those things, of our brilliance, of our dignity to say, oh, no, absolutely. You will honor who I am and how I am showing up in this space and all of my magnificence. I think that's the magical piece. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And owning that, as, as Dr. Denise said, believing that and believing that in ourselves. Before I, we move to the to the next question, as we close out. Kenya, I just wanted to circle back to, to to what you were sharing around just reproductive injustice. And I recently went on like a reproductive inquiry for myself and was looking into egg freezing and just doing mm-hmm. some research, learned that there was some recent research that was published around the neonatal mortality of Black babies born via IVF and how it is disproportionately adverse compared to white mothers, regardless of social economic status. Mm-hmm. So even um, mm-hmm. black women of affluence, um, education, right? Higher mm-hmm. educational degrees and attainment had a higher percentage of their babies dying soon after birth through in vitro fertilization I think the term is like technology assisted reproduction compared to the white mother. So it's, it's, it's super deep in that area of um, medical racism and mm-hmm. reproductive um, injustice and what those options even are. That could be a whole nother episode. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Options are for, for women. Too. We do know that black babies, um, the black community has the highest rate of infant mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, of any of our white, brown sisters, um, black babies die at disproportionately higher rates than our white um, babies and brown babies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's there's a lot of work to be done for sure. Yeah, for yeah, sure. yeah. And anyone listening to that, sisters, use whatever options and, and, and be knowledgeable on, on whatever choices you want to make in terms of your reproductive journey that isn't to scare anyone, but be knowledgeable, be aware, ask your doctors very real questions, ask them to produce data and statistics, ask them what they track 
in terms of, of, of race in, in neonatal outcomes. Yeah, and ask and them also, do they know, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Kenya. No, no, you go, you go. I was, when she was saying, ask your doctors, like ask your doctor, does the doctor know that your body is 10 years older than you are biologically because of weathering, right? And so when you treat me, I need you to treat me with cultural competence, medical competence. And so I think that a lot of times maybe what um, we don't do is we don't, uh, how often do we really uh, research the doctors that we're going to have, right? Like, mm -hmm. I want to make sure I know who it is that's caring for my body and not just the first person that pops up on the on the list from when you get your insurance card. Or, right. But we have to, we, we need to, to do our best to find someone who as, is um, more culturally competent um, and as a provider. Very, very true. And I'm just going to say just just one quick addition. Um, just, you know, for our um, our our sisters who are in relationships, don't don't block out your partner. Um, mm -hmm. Let your partner be an advocate for you, um, because there are a lot of times when, you know, women who are who are pregnant or just had a baby, their emotions are kind of all over the place. And so let the partner help advocate for you. Let the partner ask those questions for you. Um, and even with just general medical care, um, you, a lot of people suffer from white coat syndrome. When they go to the doctor, their blood pressure goes up, the nerves get mm. bad. And so they yeah. don't know what to ask. Yeah. They don't know how to respond. Then when they get home, they're like, oh, I meant to ask the doctor that. But when you were there, you know, you're just kind of scatterbrained at the moment and you just don't know what to ask. So I always advocate bring someone with you mm -hmm. that can advocate for you, that can ask those questions. Write the questions down and don't leave until the doctor or the your healthcare provider has answered those questions. You're paying for it anyway. Mm. Your your health insurance yeah. dollars are paying for it. Mm. So so get those answers that you need. Um, and so I just wanted to throw that out there as well. But that makes me think about this being an intergenerational conversation because I think we also should push people to help um, do that work with our elderly. Like when I think about yeah. my mom who just turned 86 on Sunday and mm -hmm. I go to the doctor with her, I'm amazed mm -hmm. at what happens in that space that if I were not there, she would have to navigate on her own. Exactly. And I, can't, I know people, you cannot, we can't send our parents and our mm -hmm. aunties and our grandma, we can't send them to the doctors by themselves. And, and when you said white coat syndrome, I actually thought you were about to talk about what happens to my mom, where she trusts everything the doctor says. So she doesn't ask questions because, well, mm. it's the doctor. The doctor mm, yeah. knows. And so if the doctor yeah. says, I need this pill, no, ma'am. That's not mm -hmm. how we go roll. And, right, so, right. and yeah. so I just worry so much sometimes that people are, especially older people, are left alone to um, to navigate that space. And it is extremely difficult to do. They start throwing out these words. You know, I just, yeah. so I just, yeah. I thank you for reminding us that we need to have someone with us when we go mm -hmm. to um, the a healthcare provider, regardless of your generation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and try to do some of the work ourselves, the lifting that we can do ourselves with our diet, with our exercise, mm -hmm. with right. knowing the names of all the medications that we take, with checking our blood pressure, right? Like knowing, right. being educated ourselves on our body so we are informed as well. 
That's so, that's so, I know we're not, I know it's about social justice and yeah. I, I do feel like we are absolutely really focusing right now on the, um, the health injustices, but it, it's huge because if without our health, where we can't fight the fight in other areas. Hello. And so right. I think about all of, you know, when the, even the conversations that we're having with, um, you know, older, older folks or the conversations that we're having with young folks and, and the terminology that we're using and how, you know, all of the, the, I don't even know if it's code switching. I don't know what it is, but I know that I have to say certain things to older people. And, and then I have to change my language when I'm talking to somebody in my generation. And then when I'm talking to somebody younger, mm -hmm. I have to change my language again. So they know, so that we can connect all these dots mm -hmm. because I, you know, to say diabetes. Okay. But you know, there's some folks in our community, they still talking about the sugars. It's all of this knowledge that has to happen. Cause if you say the sugars to young folks, they like candy. Well, like, what you talking right. about? Like they're mm -hmm. not exactly. Sure. So it's just just being knowledgeable in, in all facets and, and having that, as you guys have talked about, that cultural competency, even yep. within our own communities. Yes, absolutely true. But that also made me think about, um, like I said earlier, I don't think that if you drink, that's a sin. I don't think that if you smoke, that's a sin. And I do not think that those are sins. But I do think that the stress of being Black in America can uh can lead to us wanting to self-medicate in those ways. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about injustice and we talk about the health of our bodies, then I do think that we have to be mindful of our intake of these spirits because they are, uh, it, I think that it's a direct indicator of what we are experiencing. And I think that it also plays into the system because if I can keep you dull, if I can keep you high, if I can keep you intoxicated, then you can't fight. Right, so it's right. A, a weapon, and then you look at our neighborhoods. What do you see more of? Liquor right? store everywhere, fast food everywhere. And so mm -hmm. I think that that has to be part of the conversation. So, so if you're going to be a resistor, then we let's talk about what you're putting in your body, and yes. and and again, everything in moderation. So again, I'm not saying I'm just saying let's think about this, think about the role that it plays, and think about how it keeps us from being as effective as we possibly can as warriors. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Love it. So if you were to have a conversation with the civil rights or social justice leader from the past, who would it be and what's one question you would ask him or her? Can I go? <laughs> of course. Um, I would love to speak this is going to be a common answer, but I would love to speak to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Because one unique thing that I love he did during his protest was stay peaceful. And now the protest that I'm seeing now, yeah, they're protesting, but it's not as peaceful as he did it. Because when some tear gas gets thrown or any gas bombs or whatever like we're starting to fight back now physically and i would just love to ask him how did he stay calm and how did he stay peaceful despite everything being thrown at him because being emotionally mature and emotionally stable to handle those circumstances is something that i would really want to learn and i feel like he would be a teacher for that hmm. That's a good question. That's so wise to me. <laughs> so wise. 
What about other folks? Who do you all want to talk to? What are you going to ask them? I have several on my list. The list is just <laughs> endless. But I'll just throw out the first one that comes to mind. It would be um, the unbossed and unbothered Shirley Chisholm. Shirley Chisholm. Hey. Yes. <laughs> Did I steal your answer? No, 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 no. No. I'm glad oh, I okay. hear more than one. <laughs> yeah, I would just love to ask her, how did she the fortitude that she had, because she exuded it. Where did it come from? How did she sustain it? How did she maintain it? Um, and then I'd ask her, you know, in her infinite wisdom, if she had her crystal ball and knew what would what was to come, being the days that we're living in right now, what advice she would have for how we could manage to survive and thrive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Doesn't look like Christy's about to come off mute right now. So I guess that's my turn. I would want to talk to Fannie Lou Hamer yeah. from Mississippi. She did the work in Mississippi. I just went to the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama and bought her book, Until mm -hmm. I'm Free. And that that motto, mm -hmm. nobody's free unless we all free. Mm -hmm. You ain't free. If it's one person, none of us are free. When we mm -hmm. say that, I say that all the time in the work that I do. Um, Fannie Lou Hamer, she has darker skin. She has a thicker body. So that's me, darker skin, thicker body, big mouth. And big mouth meaning that I'm not afraid to use my like Tamia said, I understand that my voice is my biggest weapon. And mm. Fanny Hamer was read willing to speak up at all costs, like she was unapologetic. And so she just embodies for me all of what I think about when I say um to be a force um, mm. in the movement. And I, I was trying, I'm struggling with what I would ask her though, because what I wanna what I wanna know is I think I want to know from Fannie Lou Hamer how she continued or how she found peace in her soul with all of the comp competing thoughts about who she is. Because, you know, you have some people when you show up as unapologetic in the face, they like, yes, for your being unapologetic. Mm -hmm. But you can be that same person. You show up in another space and it's like, oh, here you go. You finna be sister soldier up in here. Mm -hmm. you have other people who call on you because they want you to have mm -hmm. that voice. But then when you raise the voice, then they bag down. Like, I came to... Mm -hmm speak up for you and now you've left me high. And I just believe she was dealing with all of that just for being who she is. And I feel that. And so I wonder how, I would just wonder if she could give me some counsel mm. uh, to help me just to just find, cause I know my place and I'm gonna walk in it, but it's just so much noise sometimes mm -hmm. around who you are that sometimes I think distracts from the work that you're trying to do. And so I would just want to talk, I'd love to have a conversation with her. Mm. Dr. Denise, you speak so poetically. Yeah. Every time you speak, it's it, sound, it sounds like music. It's harmonious, mm. it's, it's poetic. Thank you Thank for you being for you. That. I appreciate yes. that. Thank you for being you. Um, I really, um, yeah, I thought about the question, but um, I keep coming back to right now. And I keep coming back to the, to the folks who are leading right now, folks that I watch from a distance, and I just want to 
have just pull pull up a chair and and talk to him on the front porch. <laughs> like, and that person is uh, Lisa Hicks Gilbert. Mm, yes, Lisa Hicks Gilbert yeah. is from is the new mayor of Elaine, Arkansas. Mm. And if you look up in your history, you'll find mm. out. Yeah. About Elaine, Arkansas. That's a big deal. What it comes from to me, and you could Google Elaine, Arkansas. You know about the Elaine massacre? Have you heard about that? No. Look that up. So, yeah. so Lisa Gilbert, Lisa Higgs Gilbert, is a descendant of those Elaine, of those who were killed in the Elaine massacre. All of you know, we talk about social justice, mm-hmm. and she left, and she came home. And I really want to talk to her. And, you know, I watched her fight, too. You know, I'm not going to say that, you know, I wasn't there when she fought. I can remember when she, a flame was lit under her and how she was so strong. And she said, no, they're going to hear from me. Yes. So, and she stood firm on that. And I watched her fight. And I believe, and I mean, I don't know. And if anyone else has the stats, correct me. But I believe that she won mayor like by three votes, mm. you know, and it was a runoff. Yeah, it was a runoff. It lasted for a very long time, and it was just so hung up. But I'm thinking about how hard she had to fight for something she believes in, you know. And those are the folks I want to talk to. Mm-hmm. And I, if she gets to see this, I hope that we can sit down and have a conversation someday. Mm-hmm. Because we'll I make sure we'll make sure the link finds its way into her inbox in some sort of way. <laughs> and then also you said that you were going to include some resources. I think we were talking about mental health resources. Mm-hmm. Maybe there could be a link for people to learn more Absolutely. about mm-hmm. uh, Elaine. Absolutely. We can definitely do that. The massacre. Mm-hmm. And see, this is the kind of stuff that makes me mad right here. Cause I'm just thinking how <laughs> when, you, when we talk about the history, they'll call it a riot. Right? And mm-hmm. the, and it wasn't mm-hmm. a riot; it was a massacre. Like let's mm-hmm. let's tell the, truth, the whole truth. And, you know, I, that's the kind of stuff. And so then I'll be on this quest to make sure everybody knows it was a massacre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is there someone you would want to talk with, Mikkel? Yes, I would love to sit with Claudette Colvin. who is 83 years old. Many folks do not know the incredible story of Miss Colvin. I didn't. Mm -hmm. It was just four years ago when I learned about Miss Colvin, who was 15 when she refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus um, to a white man nine months before Mrs. Mm -hmm. Rosa Parks gave up her seat and Claudette was arrested taken to jail, charged with disturbing the peace, assault and battery on a police officer, and another charge related to like violating the segregation laws of, of that time. And, and Claudette was pivotal to the civil rights movement. Um, she was part of, uh, she was a plaintiff on the case, the Browder versus Gale case that successfully overturned bus segregation, but she was also hidden from history for a Mm -hmm. lot of different reasons. For her age, she was a darker skinned woman. She was pregnant at 17. There was a lot of colorism involved. Um, Mm -hmm. No disrespect to Miss Rosa Parks, but she was the better look 
to be the face right. for many different reasons. So I would ask Miss Colvin to just share some defining stories from her history um, and just glean from her and just learn and, and listen and, and be in awe and, and show reverence to Miss Colvin. Yeah. Thank you for lifting her up, Mikhail. And I was, yeah. I didn't know if we were going to go there. I didn't feel like this was going to be a space where we could go there, but I would love it, um, Dr. Maxwell, if you and Mikhail would consider us having, uh, us, I'm saying y'all consider, it doesn't have to include me, um, conversation around um, some of the rifts in our unity as Black folks. So when you mention colorism, when you mention yeah. the way that we shame people who are pregnant before they are married, and, and again, not talking about the whole institution of marriage, that now we are so excited about that we were denied for so many. You know, so those, I feel like that's a whole porch um, mm. conversation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you start to dig down and unpack and uncover some of those things within our community, you know, this is where that whole Booker T versus WB Duat, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 you know, it's mm -hmm. well, no, we can't talk about that. Why not? Yes, we can because it's let's still talk about Malcolm versus Martin. Right? Let's you know, talk about it. Let's talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> we need but to uncover some of that history and and understand mm -hmm. who we are as a result of it. But, yes, yes, that is definitely something that we can bring to the front porch for sure. Yes. Um. So, ladies, we are, you know well over the time that we had asked for you all to sit on the front porch with us, but we do want to give you all um, a, an opportunity for um, just to share some words of wisdom with the audience. What would you want to pass along to the next generation or what appreciation or gratitude would you say to the generation before you? Words of wisdom to the next generation, appreciation, gratitude, those who have come before us. Yeah, I, you know, I'll just say it, uh, having gratitude for, you know, our bodies, the way they look, the way they feel, the shape they are, our skin, everything that is uh, our appearance and everything that makes us who we are. Mm -hmm. Don't be ashamed. Don't apologize. Snaps, snaps to that. I am, one of my oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say one of my favorite quotes um, is how wonderful it is that no one waits to start to change the world. Um, and so with that, I would just say to the young people that you do not have to wait until you're an adult to affect change in your community. You don't have to wait until you finish college. You don't have to wait until you have a good job with benefits. You don't have to wait until you have a house and 2.5 kids and a, and, a, and, a, and a nest egg to, to make change. You can start today. Um, and that change does not have to be, you know, you out marching and picketing and doing sit-ins. It could be something small. Um, what you are capable of doing, not mm -hmm. what someone else wants you to do, but what you are capable of doing to affect change. And then finally, uh, what a, another quote that I like is, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. 
And we are all in this together. We have to stick together. We've done so since the beginning of time. And I don't think that we should let the isms of society break us up and tear us apart. So we have to stick together because we have so much more to do and we can do so much more when we are together. So we have to stick together. Tamia, would you like to go? Yes, but I'll go after you. She said what? Yes, but I'll go after you. You will wait. Oh, okay. <laughs> no worries. Thank you. Um, I would I would like to express my eternal, because I know forever and ever and always I will feel this way. My gratitude for every member, for the for every member of the African um, that was that was a part of the Atlantic slave trade, right? Mm. So every person who was kidnapped, every family who was separated, every child that was lost, every body that was um, dehumanized, every woman that was raped, like every person who um, was caught up in this system that is evil, right? Continues to be evil. I carry that struggle in my cells. And I know that the way that I move comes from the way that they moved. Their constant movement of, of, of picking cotton and so, all of the things that they had to do, all of that lives within me. And I feel like it makes me who I am. And so I feel like without them, I could not be. And I cannot express I cannot even, I don't have the words to articulate how grateful I am for their strength, for their courage, for their determination, for their faith, for their conviction, for their love, for their joy, for their, I, I just, I'm so thankful. And mm -hmm. that is, that is what I want. Yeah, that's what I'd like to say. Hmm. Let me, let me get this offering played out. <laughs> wow. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Tamia, close us out. What do you have to say? Um, I just want to finish it with I would tell the younger generation to be natural and to be yourself, your true self, as hard as that may be. Um, I I just wanted to tell them that you don't need a filter to fit in because inside and out, who you are is who you were created to be. Wow. Who you are is who you were created to Come be. Come now. Come on, Be that. Said that. She said that. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> ladies, thank you all so much for coming and sharing the space and time and energy with us on the front porch. We are absolutely grateful for your presence. Thank you very much. Um, we will make sure that we have links to um, all of the information that we talked about today so that we are passing along that information, that resources to create a level of awareness for all of our audience members. Um, thank you so much. We will see you next time on the Front Porch Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Front Porch Podcast. Resources and other goodness from this episode are in the description. Please share, subscribe, rate, and review, and we'll see you next week on the Front Porch.